This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Play Script Director the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center, located in the heart of the theatre sector, right in the middle of 42nd Street, where the theatre is. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. And although the Wing created the Tony Awards, it is the, as everyone seems to know, it is the most honored award in the theater. It is given for excellence. It is not for the longest running, the biggest box office smash, or the most quotable of quotes. It is for excellence in the theater. The wing is more than the Tony's though. It is the longest ongoing organization which provides services to the community and to the theater. It is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, but what we do all year round is terribly, terribly important. From the days of our acting school through the legendary stage door canteens to our current programs of bringing live professional theater to nursing homes and hospitals, to schools through our Saturday Theater for Children program, the wing stands, strives, and emphasizes professional theater. Today's seminar and this series of seminars is an outgrowth of the Wings Acting School. And it is aptly called Working in the Theater. It is designed to bring you an insight into the theater. How the performers, the producers, the directors, the playwrights, the scenic designers, the agents, and the press agents work together to bring to the audience that very important element, the best in theater. Today's seminar is devoted to the playwright director and to introduce our panelists to you is Jean Dalrymple, author, producer, and one of the directors of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing and Brendan Gill, critic, and again I'm proud to say a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing. Jean and Brendan, will you now take over? Thank you. up here, the very hardest part of the morning is already over. That was forming a line and arriving on this platform, all in the proper order. We're very proud of ourselves already. And now I, 
identify the people on my side here. Farthest to my right is Norman Rene, a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University, artistic director of the production company since 1970, director of many plays, including Marry Me a Little and Blue Window, both by Craig Lucas, and on Broadway, Precious Sons. And next, um, my middle right is John Tillinger, since 1974, the literary manager of the Long Wharf Theatre and uh, the director of Another Country after the fall and for no fewer than four productions this season, Corpse, Loot, It's Only a Play, and The Perfect uh, Party, The Busiest Man in Town. <laughs> and on my immediate right, of course, is Arthur Miller, uh, who uh, must be an immortal terror every time he's introduced uh, to have recited again the long list of superb plays that he has written. Uh, he must fear being called a dean or this, that, the greatest of all. And, and uh, it is perfectly wonderful uh, to those of us in the theater that his career has been marked by this constant, sedulous productivity. He is a marvel. Gene? <laughs> we have a marvel at my left. That's Gilbert Parker, who is one of the best beloved literary uh, agents, let's call him, I, I'd rather say representative of playwrights and directors. He, uh, he represents playwrights such as Beth Henley, A.R. Gurney, and Mark Medoff, and the directors John Haddon, Des McNuff, and John Tellinger. <laughs> and right next to him is Brian Clark, who wrote, Can You Hear Me at the Back, and that wonderful play, Whose Life Is It Anyway, and Kipling, and this season's beautiful play with Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, The Petition. And um, right next to me is Emily Mann, a most unusual woman. She's not only a very fine playwright, but she's a very good director. Uh, she's directed out at the uh, Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis at the Goodman in Chicago, the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, and her plays are still life. And one of this season's most important plays, which is now being done all over the country, and which she directed also, which is The Execution of Justice, Emily Mann. Our general question, uh, for the whole day is, is that of how the written word emerges on the stage. What is the process by which when the playwright has this, he believes uh, himself to have done, finished his play, uh, it must then uh, be actually uh, staged. And this is always a source of torment and confusion <laughs> and a source of mystery uh, to us in the audience, us outsiders. We don't know how this process takes place. And I think it'd be fun to ask Arthur, right at the very beginning, whether in his uh, long lifetime of, of uh, both writing plays and uh, being uh, at the mercy of or the benefit of directors and occasionally himself taking over directing, uh, how, he f how he feels the division of responsibilities goes in that respect. You do both, or sometimes simultaneously. Uh, unfortunately, I do occasionally <laughs> direct something. but. Uh, I think that uh, it depends entirely on the nature, on the director and the cast, even, uh, as to what the division of responsibility uh, is going to be. That is, 
And it depends, of course, a lot on the, on the playwright. Some playwrights uh, feel that uh, they know better than anybody what ought to be up there. Uh, other playwrights feel they know nothing about what ought to be up there and await a surprise, a happy surprise. Uh, I uh, tend to uh, hope for a happy surprise and it hardly ever happens. <laughs> but uh, I'm part actor myself and I know what the difficulties are. Uh, to cut possibly to the center of the whole problem, when you cast a play, uh, which is at the heart of the issue to me, you're casting human beings whose personalities very often will come out through a new characterization and come out differently than it ever appeared before. So you get an actor, for example, who uh, has a wonderful dark tone, but there are comedic, comedic scenes in the play, and he has no sense of humor. <laughs> and uh, then you begin to labor with that lighter, brighter element in him and try to invent it. And uh, the playwright then is called upon to patch up his performance by adding or subtracting text. And uh, I'm talking now, of course, about a new play which has never been performed before. And pretty soon, the original text begins to get distorted. Uh, no one knows quite when or how by the injection of material that was done really to prop up a performance. Uh, or this is a risk, uh, and it's one of the reasons why there are so few productions that are so wonderful. Uh, it's because their authenticity as an expression of the author begins to be infiltrated by other considerations. I could go on talking about this for days, but I'll spare you. <laughs> I spare you everything by saying that it's simply like a, it's like a marriage in effect. Uh, you find somebody you think you can live with and uh, sometimes you're lucky and that turns out to be the case. <laughs> and sometimes you're not so lucky and a new, uh, new sides to his or her personality begin to develop once you get comfortable. Now in this case the director has to mitigate and, and go back and forth, uh, yeah. mitigate the awkwardnesses that you've already uh, Well, he's got to be some kind of a, of a keel to the ship to prevent it from overturning. There's a whole other element here, which we probably get into later, and that is the impress, impress of a director who wants to make a production appear to be his, basically his performance. That's a different problem. <laughs> I can see we'll come to that one. John, you, now, uh, with all the casts, you've had more casts to be working with, so in respect to what Arthur's just been saying, have you found, uh, for example, that with the different productions of, say, a lute or something like that, 
that the difference in the cast makes a radical alteration both for your <coughs> job and for the consequences. Yes, definitely. I mean, I find the, the casting is a nightmare in New York. Um, unfortunately, theater is not a, a class act anymore, and people, uh, this was ever so, people will always rush off and do television and uh, movies before then. I can understand why. So it's very difficult to cast a play uh, exactly the way you feel it is right, um, and you do have to do some compromising. Um, uh, you know, I think for any given part, there are five or six actors who are spot on, and of those five or six actors, um, usually um, four are unavailable, and the last two have to, uh, you have to cajole them into doing a play for no money in tiny theaters, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so casting, I think, has become, I don't know how you feel about it, has become a nightmare in New York. Um, and uh, if you do have the right cast, as I feel I did have with Lute, um, I, your work is, is not uh, totally uh, uh, done for you, but at least you know that you can depend on the cast in some kind of way. Um, when you have to make some compromises, then you have to work a little harder and uh, make the, um, the people who are, who are miscast or, or who do not have a comedic sense in a, in a play that is maybe tragic but has some comedic uh, side to it, or, or the other way, of it's, uh, it's a, a comedic part, but there's some darker under t underpinnings that uh, you have to work very hard to, to cajole this out of an actor and, uh, and to trust them and push them and uh, mediate between. You know, the thing about uh, <clears throat> there are some, I was glad that Arthur defended directors because there are some, some writers who don't want to ever uh, have a director put their hands on and they direct their own plays and I want to uh, try and defend our, <coughs> our uh, livelihood. Um, but uh, there are other directors who say that they will never direct a play by a living playwright because um, <laughs> and, uh, this is particularly true in England. And uh, uh, I know why, because there's a lot of hysteria and especially with a new play where, where uh, uh, an author is very, very nervous about what's going to come up on that stage and they instantly want results. You go through the first reading and then they say, well, she's not being funny. And I say, well, <laughs> you know, wait, wait, wait. Uh, and um, you have to mediate between the author and the, and the cast and also you have to do a lot of um, um, psychotherapy, I suppose, because <laughs> some actors are, need to be whipped, some actors need to be stroked, some actors uh, need to be jollied along, you know. Uh, and if you were a psychotherapist, you'd be arrested already. Oh, absolutely. Your <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, I don't know. There's some psychotherapist. It's getting worse. That's right. Uh, could well, I ask Miss Mann, yes. who, who directed her own play, do you agree with all these things? Well, actually, I'm, um, I'm a bit schizophrenic about it. Um, on, there's one side of my brain that would love never to direct one of my plays, and there's the other side that felt impelled to for numerous reasons. But in fact, um, on execution, there were seven productions prior to the first time I directed it at the Guthrie and then directed it on Broadway. So um, it wasn't as if I didn't have a distance on it and hadn't seen, uh, I worked on it with other very smart people first. Um, but then I felt I needed to put it all together because I was the only one who'd seen all the work mm -hmm. over all the years. Um, but I'm also, I started out mainly as a director, so it's not as if I'm a writer who suddenly mm. just needs to direct her own work. Right. I directed other people's work. Did you have a hard time casting your play here? Um, 
depends on uh, hard. I don't know how to answer that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there were 25 funny. actors. Um, there were 25, 25 actors in our company. Um, at first, the producers wanted to have some stars, uh, yeah. and we realized that the economics of the theater right now we couldn't afford to do that and, and have a, such a huge play and a huge company. Um, and I'm glad we made the choice we made, which was to um, cast those very good American actors who loved the play and were well suited to the part. And once we didn't have to worry about name value, it was extraordinary the dedication and talent that came to us. Yes, that's so. what I wanted to say, the 24,000 actors in New York. <laughs> I should think that uh, if you had a casting call, you'd find somebody. I think yeah. American actors are wonderful. <coughs> you, do, you do find somebody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think it is a problem because also how one can keep alive with the good text and a beautiful designer without name actors is also a very big question, just an economic. I don't know where the name actors are anymore. I guess they're all doing television and films. Mm. There are very few names. No, there are very few names. There are lots of marvelous actors. Put a couple in my play. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Boy, do you? Yes, we are very you fortunate. You have the last really great couple. Mm. <laughs> Glorious. But is this? But, but again, is this something that you see as a problem, or haven't you had the no, experience I, in the past? Um, no. I, I, well, as I work in England mostly, um, I don't have a problem with casting. Yeah. We have a fantastic stock of actors who choose to work in the theatre. And also because our television system is a halfway decent and it's a proper place for playwrights and actors and directors to work. Um, unlike here, which is literally unwatchable. Um, <laughs> so we, we, we haven't that difficulty. I mean, there are a thousand playwrights, all, the, all English playwrights write for television, as far as I know, as well as the theatre. Stoppard. Brenton, Hare, Griffiths, and so on. We all, and, and we work with the same actors and directors in the television as in the theatre. So it's a much healthier, much bigger scene altogether. To come to the original question, I think the first thing to say is that theatre is a collaborative art. And if as a writer you want to have the whole shooting match, you should be writing novels. Um, you can write them like Ivy Compton Burnett, which are all dialogue, if you want to. Uh, but it, the fact is, is the joy of the theatre and the whole point of the theatre is, first of all, that it's a social art that's shared amongst a group of people, including an audience. And secondly, it is the art, above all, which investigates conflict. It would therefore be unreasonable to expect that some of that conflict wouldn't emerge in the actual developing of the piece which investigates conflict. And for me, the whole joy in the theatre is in the rehearsals. I mean, once the play starts running, well, that's nice in all sorts of ego-boosting ways sometimes. <laughs> but, but actually, that isn't what it's about. Being a playwright is about rehearsals. Um, I suspect being an actor is about rehearsals, too. And the rehearsals are such a joy because it is a situation in which a group of creative people can become very intimate 
with something outside themselves which permits all, permits all sorts of investigations that would be very difficult if you were actually dealing with the topic between yourselves as individuals. And I enjoy that process, and I enjoy my work being subjected to the top creative minds from other disciplines. That doesn't mean to say in my contract I won't have director and cast approval. <laughs> but that only gives me, and I expect a director to have the same, that only gives me an equal shot. Um, having got that, having got a director that, that I feel you know, we can work together, um, and a cast that we all approve of, both of us approve of, then we're all in there pitching equally. And uh, I would, that's the process I really enjoy. And when that works, it's a, it's a marvelous experience. Mm -hmm. And I have tried directing my own play once. It was a small play in the Fringe in London. And I remember there was a line that I loved. I think I'd have cut the whole play and just have this line spoken. <laughs> <laughs> the actor hated it. <laughs> Unfortunately, on one night, he had to go and record a television play. So I'd said I would play that night instead of him. <laughs> and I didn't have time to rehearse it. I, I, knew, I, I learned the words. I had a quick word rehearsal with the actors before we went on. And I did this, and I got to this line, and it was unspeakable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came off afterwards and said to the other actors, how did the director let the writer get away with a line like that? <laughs> That's a tiny example, and I would choose not to direct my own plays, um, at least not in the first production. I would rather the whole thing arose with other minds. You, as uh, Norman, is, is the person who's not yet spoken to this subject as a director. Uh, have you had so far amicable relationships with authors? Uh, yes, I feel that I've been very fortunate from the stories that I've heard between directors and playwrights. <laughs> but it seems to me that there must, be a, there must be an understanding of trust from uh, George Firth said to me that as a, as a playwright, I must give the play to you, and then you must give it to the actors. And I think that that's true, that, that there are very definite responsibilities that the playwright has, which are the words. Um, it seems that the director needs to have a vision or interpretation of those words, and the actors must do the actions that bring those words to life. And I think, bottom line, you must trust that you, you're working with people who will bring the best to each of those jobs or will help you discover something that you don't see in, in, in that. Um, You've had that experience with casts, however, that the play has turned out to be different from what you supposed it was because of the cast. Well, I think that where people get in trouble are specifics that you can accomplish the same thing by doing several different things. And sometimes you're at a loss for what the core problem is. What are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? Uh, so everyone jumps on, well, if she wore a blue dress, no, she must wear a pink <laughs> dress. Um, if I pick up the coffee cup here, or if I pick it up there. And I think that that's where problems begin, rather than really trying to find what are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? We were talking yesterday with Aidan Quinn, who's playing in Lie of the Mind, and he was asked what it was like not only to act in a Shepherd play, but to be directed by Sam Shepard. And he said that Sam Shepard left everybody pretty much to their own intentions. And uh, 
That sounded absolutely terrifying, <laughs> uh, for, for, because it's difficult enough to imagine what, uh, what Shepard wants in his plays, and, and he won't tell them. And so there they are, having to do that. And I would think that it would be desperately necessary, particularly in the Shepard play, that the director take more charge than that. I, I, would, I would hate to be an actor working in the Shepherd under those circumstances. Do you come in with it blocked out in your mind? Do you have a clear view of what you want your actors to do? Or do you come in and, and work with them in developing the characters that the playwright has given to you? I like to do a lot of homework before I begin rehearsal, uh, so that I'm very clear about the way I see the play, what I feel needs to happen in the course of the play. Um, and if I, th I think of that period as gathering information. When I begin rehearsals, I like to forget about all of that information and watch um, to, to, to find out, because I guess in some ways it's still gathering information. Now that you have people speaking these lines and interpreting these lines, spending a period of time just watching that and guiding it with the, with the knowledge that I have. And I think the hardest thing is to stay open, is to, is to also deal with what you are watching. Um, how does that affect me? Does, that, does this scene not only just work because you got through it and you got three laughs, but is it do, serving the play the way it's supposed to? If not, then going back and saying, even just randomly changing things to see if that then produces uh, the desired effect. And I, and I think that my biggest job is to remain open and ultimately at the beginning to have enough uh, to know what I feel the playwright wants to say with the play, what I want to say, and what I want to say with the play. And somehow communicate that to the designers and the actors. Go through the rehearsal process of staying open and at the end somehow making sure that that we met our commitment to the play. Um, yeah. And as Mr. Clark said, that, that theater is about conflict, or that, that there is much conflict in theater. And I prefer to look at that conflict as that usually I think that we go to the theater to watch people try and make their lives better, which creates conflict. Um, and I think that the same thing you find true in the rehearsal process. If you, if you allow people to do their work, that everyone is there to make the play better. Um, and if you trust that and trust each other, um, there generally aren't big problems. I think a rehearsal period is really, I think, gathering from all of us is, is, is a period of discovery. That everybody, I mean, I don't think I come in with preconceived ideas of how it should be, but uh, I mean, I do do some homework before I start. And also creating the right atmosphere for the rehearsal to work, for the actors to work in the best way possible. I mean, recently I directed Gurney's um, Perfect Party, and. The atmosphere I tried to create was of a party. A lot of jokes were told, a lot of um, uh, silly improvisations took place, and from it uh, a party atmosphere emerged, at least I hope it did. Uh, the party is in fact off stage, but uh, there is a party going on. And I feel that that is, that is how I work best, not having a preconceived idea of, I think I'm too stupid really to have a concept of what the play should be. I just think, well, this is what it means to me, and then go into rehearsal process and, and work out with the actors. And usually I have had, I feel very lucky that I've, I've had very good relationship with all the authors I've worked with, even, even Arthur, <laughs> who I was told was, was fierce. And, um, and frankly, After the Fall was one of the happiest experiences of my career. Um, it was a very difficult play and um, painful to... Uh, 
to a lot of the actors. I remember one day Diane Weiss saying to me, I just don't think I can go down there again. Uh, <clears throat> and having to cajole an actress to, to plumb those depths. And, and, uh, and yet we, we were able to laugh and I hope get a lot of humor in the play that, um, that we didn't know was going to be there when we what started. What made it so painful? What made that particular? Well, it is, about, it is about the conflict between man and woman. Mm -hmm and uh, the relationship that goes on with those three, the three women. I mean, I think Arthur would tell you better than I what, the, what was painful about it. Um, that it was about, uh, you know, the three relationships of his life, his first marriage, his second, and then ultimately the third, where he came through. And it's about survival. I mean, I suppose most plays are about survival, how people survive or don't survive. And um, <clears throat> this is about uh, somebody who wanted to, who, thought he was surviving and then didn't and uh, thought she would help him. You speak from <laughs> you speak for your own play. Is he describing it as you wrote it? <laughs> one, of the, one of the thrilling things about, about plays, uh, as in comparison with movies and television, uh, is that a play will have production after production after production. The tragedy with movies has always been that even if there was a good movie intended to be to come into existence. Right. If it fails, it's never made See again, again, whereas right. a successful movie like A Star is Born is made over and over and over. But I was wondering, in the case of Arthur, you must have the, the most experience of anybody living of having the most productions of your plays. You must have seen some of your plays in, what, 20 productions <laughs> with your own eyes, and they've all, how have they been? Have they been well, it depends. There's a big, uh, depends what country they're in. I haven't seen all that many, but I've seen enough. Uh, to say that, uh, see, the directorial angle on something can materially alter its uh, nature. I saw, I'm thinking uh, specifically of Michael Blakemore, uh, Michael Blakemore's production of uh, a play of mine called All My Sons, which I saw about three years ago in London. I think it was three years ago. And I had never seen excepting one other production in Jerusalem, a production of that play where the central character was the mother. And uh, I, it made me realize, it, made, it threw me back on the time when I was writing the play. And when indeed, before it got cast, and before it got directed, and before it got acted, that was the case. But I'd never said that to anybody. Hmm. And uh, Rosemary Harris played the part, who was a very powerful uh, personality on the stage. And uh, I looked at her and I said, well, of course, that's the way it ought to be, because everybody's trying to find out a secret, which she knows from the time the curtain goes up. I'd never thought of it quite that way, consciously, since I'd written it. <laughs> and. Uh, the other time I saw it in that perspective was in Jerusalem with a very great actress, the one who had her leg blown off in the Munich airport. Yes. And she, uh, she was that kind of a force which propelled the whole work. Uh, now, when we did it in New York originally, and most of the time I'm sure it was done, it was done in a film the same way, it was basically a conflict between a father and a son. And she was a rather an ancillary figure. And 
Because your title may have given people the clue to make it the right. right direction. Right. Because by that, see, I changed that title after we started rehearsal. What was interesting? It? Yeah, what it was, was it the sign of the archer? Mm -hmm. Because, and that's interesting, you see, because she's the one that believes in astrology. And he was born under the sign of the archer, the son that she lost in the war. So it really was about her. See, that was the original title. Now, who chose to change the title? Well, uh, in those days, in the theater, this is 47, uh, the audience was assumed to be even more subnormal than they are now. <laughs> and I was a very uh, a young writer. Not so young, but I was beginning on in theater. And uh, all the hotshots said, nobody's going to know what that possibly refers to. Very poetical title. <laughs> And uh, I thought, well, everybody must know that uh, that's what it's, you know, something about it. I said, well, wouldn't they find out once they got in? They said, the problem is get them in. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was prevailed upon to change the title. And uh, that's, it came up with all my sons because that's it. It came out of a speech at the end of the play. It must have been some such uh, ad advice. Uh, somebody must have told you, you can't use death of a salesman as a title. Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> death. That's, you can't do that. <laughs> well, he went so far. Uh, Robert Dowling, who was the owner of the theater, the city investment company that owned the Morasco and several other theaters, and Kermit Bloom Garden, who was the producer, and several other associated people, was sure that nobody would come, and they they paid for a poll to be taken on the street. This is an actual <laughs> fact. And which they, they asked the public, would you go to see a play called Death of a Salesman? Nobody would. <laughs> it's interesting that you've done two plays this season on death without death in the title. Yeah, but my title, it's extraordinary. I had the same experience as Arthur. Um, the Whose Life Is It Anyway was first done as television, and everyone hated the title. They're all coming up with wonderful things like point of decision and all that. <laughs> and, and in fact, when we recorded it, we sat in the studio for an hour after the end of the recording, waiting to record the title, Every, everyone on overtime, whilst the producer kept ringing down saying, how about? Finally, <laughs> as vetoing the lot, we had to have it. It happened in the theatre. And we had a poll. The producers had a poll. I didn't think they did they that. Got market, they got the market researchers to come up with, and I vetoed them all. And, um, and it, it, it turned out to be a successful title. I mean, titles, and now, now every time you open a paper, you read whose wife is it anyway, whose parents are and so on. Whose wife is it anyway? No, it, it, it's always, it's, it's the most common headline. It really is. So you're passing into the language. But, but it's... Um, in the petition, though. The petition. Well, that's, no, the petition's about a, the petition. That is the most exactly titled play I can imagine. The whole, it deals with a petition. The fact that the characters, you know, talk... It's uh, a springboard uh, for, for death, though. No, it isn't. It's, no. Um, it's, a, it's a springboard for discussion about the bomb. Uh, that's what it is. And about survival. And about, I mean, the fact that a character's ill... That's not what the play's about. The play is about carrying on, about just carrying on, as you say. That's what plays are about, 
who's had some, uh, you know, that's, it isn't about death. Did you have these two wonderful performers in mind when you... Absolutely not. No, I wrote it for Peggy Ashcroft, and Peggy is not going to be in the theatre anymore. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of problems casting because I needed two very old actors. And uh, in spite of all the assumption by critics that somehow or other I, I provided a vehicle for these two, I mean, they, they, it finally we got to these two because they, they and that's why I'm in America opening. To a Hume Cronin and Jessica Tanner, you know, which was wonderful to, to find those. So that, I mean, although I hated the thought of starting a new play in this terribly hostile environment, which it is, um, it seemed, it seemed to package Peter Hall directing Hume and Jesse, seemed um, a package too good to refuse. Although I, I really don't think, I mean, actually, ha writing a play and starting it on Broadway is like exposing your child on the mountainside. To see <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's not a kind thing to do to a play. But, it, but that's what we did because they, you know, we felt we had two such performances. That, that's an interesting subject. Yes, I yes, agree. <laughs> the hostile environment. It's a war zone. The, the hostility Absolutely. of New York to the theatre. Could I ask Gilbert Parker what he thinks about? Do you think there's oh. a hostile environment? Oh, I think it's I think it's very true. It's becoming increasingly difficult. I mean, when I started being an agent, one sent read a play that one liked and sent it out to producers in New York, and hoped that somebody would option it and put it on, maybe take it to New Haven and Boston and bring it into a Broadway production, and that simply has totally vanished now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's maybe one or two productions a year, like the Petition, that go on that way. Maybe if they have stars, uh, Norman. Uh, Norman's play, Precious Sons, did it that way, but that's very, very rare. Uh, Crimes of the Heart, a play I represented, had five non-profit theater productions before it got to Broadway. Almost all of them with different casts and different directors just working in theaters around the country, trying to get it to a point that somebody would finally bring it, uh, and bringing producers out to see that who kept saying, no, it's not really strong enough, it's not good enough, it's, it's interesting but too quirky to finally get it to that point. And more and more, we're getting to not only one regional theater production, but several in order to bring it into New York with mm -hmm. as much work done on it and as much credentials. I mean, Emily's play, Execution yeah. of Justice, how many Eight. productions did you have? Eight. Eight. I mean, the, the wait is getting longer and longer to get it to the point that you can mm -hmm. bring it to New York, where it's likely to be slapped down by the family. We have the terrible problem in New York that there is one critic who decides whether a play will live or not. Most writers now, I think, say, you know, avoid New York as long as possible. Let your play live. I mean, there are fantastic, great theaters all around the country, and, and I'm finding for myself that the, there's a great deal of interest in American work again in Europe. Um, I've had my last play was in six languages. I mean, it's been mm. marvelous. And the shortest runs of my plays have been in New York. <laughs> but they've had wonderful, healthy lives, and a lot of people have seen them. And I... Um, I, I can imagine um, coming into New York cold without having felt it first in another society is, is, can be so, so difficult. I mean, you, you don't even have all the, the background of knowing, well, we know it's a first-rate um, thing that does communicate um, to a broad base. Um, well, why do people come into New York in that case? It, it well, is, it I think the system has really reversed. It used to be things started in New York and then fanned yeah, out across yeah, the country, yeah. and now it's absolutely reversed. But why so. isn't that a good thing that it's reversed? Well, I think it is a good mm -hmm. thing, except we don't, we're just beginning to have a real circuit that involves uh, plays going from one nonprofit theater to another. Uh, the very, I mean, 
there's a certain case of premieritis with new plays out among in the nonprofit theaters. So if you have a new play and it is done, say, at the Seattle Rep, the people at the Alliance in Atlanta may say, well, I know we're looking for a new play, but this one's already been done. Mm. And you say, yes, but it was enormous success in Seattle. Well, don't you have anything that hasn't been done? We really want to do a premiere. We want to be able to announce it as the premiere of a new play. And this play can be a sensation in Seattle. And to get it moved to that next regional theater, if it doesn't come into New York, to find a theater in Chicago or Dallas or San Diego or Cincinnati that will do it is mm. not easy. Oh, it's a regional play. Well, that should be fought. Right. That snobbery is, is nonsensical. So They're now the writers are saying, well, let's go to England first. I mean, we can do eight in the region, but if you go to London, like in London, then they won't dare pan you in New York. So it's all this <laughs> cynicism gotten. Yeah, the most well, Broadway uh, producers are producing plays in London is amazing at this point. Oh, and I can see why it costs uh, uh, a little less. Mm. But but I mean, in the regional the theaters are healthier than ever. I mean, uh, all I can talk about is Long Walk, and where we, you know, there are three productions this year, or actually five, that did over 100% capacity. Yes. Uh, you know, you may say that it's regional theatre and what do they know and so forth, but mm -hmm. um, they people, and you find the kind of excitement there that you frankly don't uh, in New York very much. Very well, intelligent audiences that have seen a lot of theatre in their lives, and really they have a classical base as well as an understanding of new play. Can you say that the New York theatre is dead then? No. No. No, but no. it's under-rehearsed. <laughs> you see that you, you don't you necessarily see the, the best in But you had an advantage of four weeks in Boston, didn't yes, you? Yes, we did. Yeah. No, the audience is under-rehearsed. That's because you're English. In, in, in love. That's right. In, if you were American, you wouldn't get it. No. Well, you know, there has to be some advantage, right. for God's sake, of being. Well, Arthur, yeah. I, think, I do think we should make, make the point here. The New York Theatre is in desperate, desperate trouble. At the same time, I think there are probably more people going to see live professional theater in this country on any given night than have ever gone to see it before. Uh, so, and I think that's... As a creative force in the speaking theater as opposed to the musical theater. Mm. I think, oh, I, th I think the, the dangers course. are extraordinary here. Yeah. But why should why it be it? dead? If what why you people are saying, hmm? it should be dead then. If, no, well, if what you say is true, no. then it should be dead. No, 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 no I, don't, I don't think it should be. Why, why cannot, it, why be cannot be coexist? Hmm? I mean, the, 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 well, if it was only the snobbery that sustained it, that isn't a valuable reason to continue to have New well, York. But as, as a representative of writers, I have to say that a New York production gives a life to a play throughout the world that it does not have if it's simply a success in a couple of cities outside of New York. People wait for it to be done. Then suddenly, even if it only gets middling reviews and has a short run, you get the inquiries from Holland and Germany and Scandinavia and Japan about the rights to that play, which they're not really very interested in. If you say, this is enormous success in Dallas, and please yeah. you know, do this play, and they say, we'll wait till it comes to New York and yeah. see what happens. In terms of publication and all those things that give the play a life, that give the author some income, that it is on the long road. That's very hard to establish on a play that is never done in New York. I mean, that's still a given fact. But Arthur, eventually, maybe people will healthy. catch up to the fact that New York isn't as important but as it used to be. But who's not yet. starting to catch up with that idea? Whose life is it anyway? Was available free for any regional company who wanted to do it for four years to just to get a production. Uh, Chris, the Chicago publishing company that published it was going around the company offering it free, completely free of royalties of everything, just to get a production for four years. Nobody, nobody wanted well, what it. What does that say to you? They're pretty dumb out there. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think we have about a, a hundred 
regional theaters right here in New York, all these little theaters that put on new plays, and every once in a while one pops up, and it ends up on Broadway. But I think we have to go back to New York is the place that everybody looks to for the professional quality and to go out. It's still what goes out to the country, despite the fact that so much is coming in. But I think what happens in our New York theater is the price of tickets. It isn't the same as Atlanta or Seattle or any of the other regional areas in which people want to go to the theater. People want to go to the theater here too. But their answer is, is it worth it? And that's a terrible, terrible price to put on going to the theater. Is it worth it? It depends on what it means. It's a downward spiral, you see. When I said just now, I think the audiences are under-rehearsed here. There was a wonderful moment in rehearsal of the petition when we had a rogue laugh. There was a terribly painful line. I thought it was the best line I've ever written in my whole life. Four <laughs> words which carried so much pain. I remember John Mills, who's about to, oh, we're going to do another production of John Mills and Rosemary Harris at the National Theatre in London. And John read this and he says, my God, there'll be such a pause after then. We'd be able to leave the theatre and have a beer and a sandwich and come back and carry on. What we actually got was the biggest belly laugh you've ever heard. <laughs> we, we were shocked in Boston. We worked at it. We tried it this way. We retimed it. I added a pause. I added a line. I, Hume played about with it as only Hume can. Finally, we, we reduced the laugh bit by bit until finally, after Robert said, well, that's it. If that doesn't work, I'm calling the audience for rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's a wonderful line, which I shall use someday. But the, it's true. Audiences need to be rehearsed. And they're rehearsed by seeing a lot of plays. And not all marvellous plays. First of all, they're rehearsed in London by seeing a sufficient number of classic plays. Yeah. In London, you can all, there's always two Shakespeare's on any night, <laughs> possibly three. Mm. There are, you can always see Ibsen and Chekhov and so on. So that's for a start. And actors also play them, and therefore they get trained too. But they also need to see a large number of plays of all kinds... And you don't, they don't, everyone doesn't have to aspire to be a masterpiece. I think you can judge the success of a theatre centre about whether you can have a moderate success. I agree. A That's moderate good. success, yeah, not a great smash thing. <laughs> you, need in a, you need about 40, 50 playwrights that are producing work that is actually not going to be in the, uh, the history books 200 years from now, but it's good, professional, competent stuff. And unless you have this, there is not sufficient um, chance for the odd ones to pop up. That's right. And now, in the case of New York, everybody is so greedy, starting with the, with the real estate people, Oof. that... <laughs> which sometimes masquerade as producers. <laughs> but I think in that case, uh, everything becomes so expensive, everything becomes too big a, too big a premium, too much is, is, has, each play has to carry too much weight. So the thing is crushed. Audiences fall away. And we've lost the audience. We've lost the audience. Yeah. The That's audience the doesn't regularly think of going to the theatre. Do you have any suggestions? Everything that you've said is true, but have you any suggestions of what we can do for getting this audience, for being able to have moderate successes, I not know. to have the blockbuster? I think that's most important. Arthur has. Yeah, I have a suggestion. 
I carried it out once. You see, this it goes way back, this problem. And I was a member of the Dramatists Guild, uh, the uh, Authors League and Dramatists Guild. Uh, I was one of the directors of it, or whatever we call us, a council member in the 50s. And uh, in those days, the prices of tickets was rising by small increments, but it was rising. And uh, I realized at a certain point that it was going to do exactly what it turned out it was it did do, which was to uh, push more and more people away from theater. The kind of people that I thought ought to be there, namely school teachers, students, and people who were really people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is, they brought, they were not surfeited, they were not completely stuffed yet. They were still aspiring to some spiritual quality of life. They didn't feel they'd made it, and they should be out there in the theater hoping to be fed by this theater, not diverted. And they were being turned away. I knew it because I had friends in that class of people. And the prices then were only 440 and 660 and it was going up every week or month. So I had caused an invitation to be sent out by the Dramatists Guild to the producers, the unions, the actors, unions, everybody involved in the theater, to sit down and consider whether or not we couldn't all reduce our take by some fair percentage. Perhaps the playwrights should be reduced more than the stagehands, percentage, point of view of percentage, or whatever, but that we could certainly work out some fair percentage of reduction. Nobody came excepting about seven producers and Lee Schubert, who owned all the theaters. <laughs> and I made my pitch, and I said, we are heading for a catastrophe. And uh, that if we don't do something now, it will be too late once the price rises to a certain point. Because everything else will have risen to that point, and we'll have to cut flesh. Right now, it cut fat. One reaction came out of, and nobody came except these producers. The unions didn't come. The actors sent nobody. Uh, nobody was interested. Uh, Herman Shumlin, an old friend of mine, a very serious producer, rose and he started screaming. He said, the producers are starving! <laughs> he, his suggestion was that we reduce the royalties. <laughs> Lee Schubert simply sat there. You know, he used to look like a little shrunken, like, a, like an Indian head that, that had been removed. And he was very sunburned and very shriveled. And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me as though I'd lost my mind. And he just got up and toddled out. And that was the end of that. Uh, the other meeting I was at, which is the alternate side of this problem, was when the Herald Tribune folded. We used to have two, in my time, there were many more papers that meant something. And among them was the Herald Tribune, which was the other morning newspaper. 
And uh, uh, Walter Kerr was a critic, and he was a considerable voice. And that folded. So we were suddenly aware of what we should have been aware of much earlier, namely that we were in the hands of whoever it was that was writing for the New York Times. Uh, and uh, that everything else mattered much less. And that uh, there was no system of this kind, this side of the Russian border. Because uh, when Stalin died, no other Russian leader by himself could close a show. <laughs> took a committee. That's a serious statement, you know. That is dead serious. But in New York, one man can do it. So the New York Times got nervous. And Clifton Daniel, who was then the managing editor, uh, called me and uh, called a lot of other people and we met in some restaurant, I can't remember which now, uh, about a hundred people. There were writers there and producers and actors representatives and some agents and a lot of newspaper people and he said, look, I want to discuss this development which the New York Times of course did not engineer. We were handed by history this, this monopoly of the theater and we don't think it's healthy. This was 60-whatever year the Tribune folded. And uh, we want suggestions for you people, because we think that a monopoly of this kind is unhealthy. <clears throat> so this fellow thought this, and somebody else thought that. And so, so I said, look, I have a suggestion, which is stupid for a playwright to have, and that is that you have more than one critic. Uh, if this is the problem, we can't start a new newspaper. So why don't you send, let's say, three people to a show? Maybe two professional critics and one person who loves the theater. There's a lot of intelligent people, regular theater goers, at least they were then. And uh, maybe uh, you come up with something interesting. We'd get alternative. I mean, get Harold Clerman and this guy. But get a different kind of a critic. Don't get two of the same stripe. And I think it would make interesting reading. People would like to know what the differences were. Maybe pick up some comments from civilians who happened to be there, and so on. And it seemed to me a feasible notion. I thought a while, he said, no, we couldn't do that. I said, why couldn't you do that? He said, well, who would represent the New York Times. <laughs> I said, well, you assembled this group here because you didn't want that kind of power. Now you're telling me that you really do, don't you? Yeah. And the meeting just sort of spilled out into the street and nothing happened. So we really are where we deserve to be. And also we, we buy into it because I directed a play in London and it got some good notices, some very good notices, and some stinkers. And the day after it opened, there was uh, the telephone rang at the box office, and a man asked for eight tickets. And they said, well, um, why are you coming to see the show? And he said, well, um, I, I read the notice. They said, well, what was your paper, Financial Times? Well, that was the stinker. And they said, well, that's a terrible notice. And he said, yes, the man's an idiot. If he hated it that much, it must be good. <laughs> I wish you know, this could happen here. 
I think what I would like to have happen here is that we're close enough to the New York Times right now. We have a very representative group here, both on the panelists and in our audience. And why don't we all go petition the New York Times right now? <laughs> I think that it, it's so important that, that we get more than one person that has the, the power to close the combined efforts of so many people and not have the, given the opportunity to the civilian we should Miller add says, one more to see thing. the show. I'm sorry. I, I think we should add one other equate to the elements of the equation. You see, this would matter. Two lethal things happened at the same time. One was the attrition among the newspapers, so that gradually there were fewer and fewer. At the same time that the price of the ticket went up. So had the price stayed down, People would then read the New York Times or whatever other newspaper was uh, important to them and say, well, it's, it sounds like it's a sort of medium show, but it, what the hell, I'll go and see it because I like this actor, or I'm curious about that, what that writer says, or this director, or whatever, or because it's raining. Uh, but you see, you can't be easy about it right. when you've got a hop It's an investment. Your, That's right. Your, yeah. your next yeah. week's lunch. And the prices really have escalated. I mean, I did a play on Broadway only 12 years ago, and the top price was $8. Uh, $8, and I think at the weekend it was 10 That's 12 years ago, and it's frightening. Well, I think we should all learn something from what happened to the newspapers, because we, there used to be seven daily newspapers in New York, and the unions kept raising the prices, and suddenly the newspapers struck, went out of business. Suddenly we found ourselves with three newspapers. The I'm same thing is now to happening <coughs> to us in the theater. Right. Interrupt at this point, and we'll come back to this, and, and I hope much more than this. We're going to take a short break now, and then there'll be questions from the audience. Please don't go too far away, because we want to come right back. and and come on with this, working the theater. <laughs> We're continuing the American Theater Wing seminars on working in the theater. These seminars are coming to you from the City University of the Graduate Center, located on 42nd Street. This seminar is devoted to the playwright and the director. It's the most exciting, interesting, and important one. And I'm going to continue with the discussion right now on why New York does not have the theater-going population that London has, Seattle, or any of the other cities that we've been talking about. We're going to continue now with Brendan Gill and Jean Dalrymple as co-moderator, who will go on and question these learned and concerned people who work in the theater. If I am to reintroduce uh, the guests, at least on this side, uh, 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 it's Norman uh, René John Tillinger and Arthur Miller. And we are in the midst of our discussion, so <coughs> Jean, you take over from there. Gilbert Parker, Brian Clark, Emily Mann. I'd, li I'd like to establish one thing that, P that, that um, Edith Oliver, who is in the audience, uh, uh, said it to me, but I was going to say it anyway, which is that uh, there's the, in this discussion, everybody thinks that there isn't a theater in New York. There is, in fact, a theater in New York. If you go down to the public theater, there's always excitement in that lobby. There are four or five plays going on. There's 
plays going on at the uh, 42nd Street. There are plays going on in... Circle uh, Rep. What? Circle Rep. Circle Rep, uh, Manhattan Theatre Club, uh, Playwrights Horizon. And there, interested people in the theatre will go to those plays. The price of tickets at the public theatre, I think, is $18, and you can usually get a cut rate one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I think this mythology about how exciting the theatre is in England is to do with the fact that the exciting theatre in England is subsidised theatre. If you go to the West End, it's all, with very few exceptions, crap. Uh, it's mostly uh, American uh, imports because there's a huge American influx of tourists. They're really going to feed it this year uh, when the Americans don't come over. Um, the the theatre in the, the West End is, is not very good. At least I didn't see very much good theatre, and I go there most, most years. Uh, but the theatre outside, uh, and I mean it's still in London, is at the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, where you have some very, very interesting things, as, as well as the, uh, the Royal Court, the Bush, the Hampstead Theatre Club. And it's interesting that Mr. Clark's play is being put on at the National Theatre. For 30 performances only. 30 performances <laughs> um, only. You can't live off that, can you? I no, mean, no, it, but, it, but that is because <coughs> Peter can't direct in the West End. Oh, I see. So it is a West End play. May I ask? But it's true what in New York as... Oh, sorry. No, go on. I'm saying it's true in New York as... Uh, in America as well that I think the important theatre in America is taking place now in the subsidised theatre, whether it's outside mm. of New York at the major, uh, really the national theatre um, system that's been set up from the arena on the East Coast to the Mark Taper Forum on the West Coast and all everything in between. But in New York, there's a, sp a particular problem in that the nonprofit or subsidized theater in New York is off-Broadway in mostly small houses. If you have a big idea, where can you put it except on Broadway here? There may be two subsidized large houses in all of New York. So New Yorkers are seeing very scaled-down uh, serious work. They're seeing large entertainment pieces, but they're not seeing large um, serious pieces, unless they're imports that are already finished. I mean, the RIC may come in for a guest appearance, but you're not seeing American Shakespeare on a large scale um, the way they are at the Guthrie Theater or the Arena Stage. I mean, there's a problem in New York there, both for the audience and for uh, the workers in the theater, the artists right. in the theater. But Broadway has become a sort of Las Vegas <coughs> where, you, where you just see a, a show. Absolutely. The people who go to see Cats go and see one play a year and it's Cats or whatever the next <laughs> one is, or Cats again, which is... 42nd Street. <laughs> Actually, 42nd Street is in the great tradition of American musicals, I, I think. I mean, I think it's... It's it was run for seven years. People yes. talk about prices, 4750. Yes. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Well, it's, it's terrifying. become a big celebration. It's the anniversary, the birthday, or whatever, and that's not really what theater should be. And you I, I work a lot with American writers, pr principally with American writers, Luke notwithstanding. And uh, the amount of times that a show has got good notices, and then there was talk of moving it, and it was always, uh, I just directed a play of Pete Gurney's, A.R. Gurney Jr.'s, and it got very good notices, and then there was talk of moving it. And immediately they said, uh, Broadway, oh no, 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 Broadway, no, 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 we couldn't possibly. I mean, it's now taboo for an American playwright to get his play art done on Broadway. I know there are some exceptions uh, at this moment, but, but it's very okay. hard. Uh, Off-Broadway is the... Uh, you know? Everyone's in terrible trouble, though. Right. I must terrible. defend London a little here. I think we have a situation in London where there aren't enough theatres. We have all our theatres, and there are many more theatres in London than there are on Broadway, all our theatres are filled up, and we've got about ten plays in a holding pattern going around and around uh, over London trying to find a landing place in a mm -hmm. theatre. 
Um, what did that come over here? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you do. <laughs> you over see, here um, crash. Amongst those plays, for example, is the latest Martin Sherman play an American playwright who actually made it in the West End of London. Uh, Bent was, was done there. Um, there's a new Mario Bent Mally. was also first done at, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, you, we, we, don't, we mustn't get into a dialogue no, no. between England and America. No, no, I don't want to do that. Because Bent was originally done at the, at the O'Neill Foundation. Uh, the producer decided to do it in London for reasons that are obvious, economics. But th it is, all I'm saying is that the theatres are all being used of course a lot of them have not got wonderful plays in them. That will be normal. I think at any one time, probably including 1595, uh, most of the plays were crap. Uh, <laughs> even in that time. At any one time, most of the plays on are not going to be wonderful. Before we leave London, I, I just want to ask one thing. What is the difference between the National Theatre and West End in price scale in royalties for the playwright, does a, does a playwright give back anything to the National Theatre when the show becomes a commercial production? No. The royalties are the same, except you get fewer productions uh, in the National Theatre because it's in repertory. Right. Um, and when you go into the West End, you get your normal West what's End the difference in Approximately, what's the difference in price of tickets? <coughs> well, I think our top ticket price in the West End, when we go into the West End with the petition, will be £11. Um, but you can get a good seat for mm -hmm. 7 or 8 which which is what between the top price will be about $15. Yeah. And, um, basically, we're talking about ticket price and going to the theatre. Yes. That you can afford to have the not the great hits. That's right. But enough theatre, isn't that it's that much more exciting, as you said, it's just that there is, it is more available to more people. But surely, Brian, the, the standard, the I mean, people don't earn that much money, so 11 pounds must mean quite a lot to a, the average Englishman. Yes, for but, but, but the theatre has always been... Well, $50, yes. Theatre has always been a minority <laughs> taste. I know. Always has been. It, we're not talking about, um, you know, even 10% of the population ever. Um, the smallest theatre-going public probably that's ever been was in Shakespeare's theatre when, when they couldn't run a play on two consecutive nights because there wasn't a big enough audience. Uh, Shakespeare's company did 45 plays a year with 12 actors because the audience was so small. It always has been terribly small. And if it ever gets up to astronomical heights of 3 or 4 percent, I mean, we'd all be millionaires. <laughs> the fact I'll is, drink it has. <laughs> <laughs> what we're dealing with is tiny yeah. margins, always. We're going to open this up now to questions from the audience. Would you now? Hi, this is for Mr. Miller and Mr. Parker. Uh, going back to this uh, controversy over the New York Times, beginning with the regime of Mr. Daniels and Mr. Rosenthal at the Times, they did attempt on many occasions to diversify their theater coverage, but uh, just because the New York Times is so powerful doesn't mean you don't have other voices in New York. You've got astute writers uh, working in the theater area at the New York Daily News and the New York Post. Is it fair only to blame the New York Times or the people who believe that this is the ultimate, the last word, and we shouldn't go anyway? I don't blame the Times. I, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm describing a condition, which is a condition which, due to the cultural uh, evolution of the city, 
ended up by according the Times, or whoever writes for it, I'm not even criticizing a critic at this moment. It doesn't matter who the critic is within limits, but those limits are pretty broad. Whoever's writing that under that masthead has an immense impact. There's no way around that, but it's the way we have been brainwashed, I guess, or the way we uh, choose to think. And uh, I repeat that if the prices were lower, it might mitigate this condition. Thank you. I would just like to Come add on. to that in terms of <clears throat> the New York Times. It's not that the other critics are not good and that they are not read by a certain number of people. But most of the people who go to the theater are regular readers of the New York Times. And when you talk, they talk about the reviews are very good, they don't know what the review was in the Daily News or, or the Post. And you tell them that, the, that the other, only the New York Times is bad, the other reviews were wonderful, and they look quite puzzled because they haven't seen them. And that's why you have to spend enormous <coughs> amounts of money advertising in the Times the fact that the other critics like the money in the Times. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like telling somebody that, look, you've been fired at by 12 riflemen, but you only got hit in the head once. The <laughs> 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 uh, rest of them all missed. Yeah. <laughs> this question is for any of the playwrights on the panel. Um, with the hundreds of writers' programs that I'm sure are available today, are any of you, uh, do any of you have any recommendations which are better than others, or are any of you of the opinion that playwriting is the kind of thing that really can't be taught, that you just have to do? You better answer that. I don't know what that is, what the answer is. I don't, I don't know a lot about the programs that exist. I would only say, in general, if there is a program somewhere where you can see your work performed by actors uh, on some kind of regular basis, that is a much better program than one sitting reading books in a classroom and being lectured. I think that's, I think that's true. That the, the main education of a playwright occurs in, in the theatre and in the rehearsal room. And this can be at many levels. And writers' programmes which are entirely literary are likely to fail. Someone said recently, I can't remember who, that the, the playwright's spiritual ancestor is not a poet but a juggler. <laughs> and I'm sure that's true. And if a playwright forgets that, then he's in danger of disappearing into the stratosphere, um, where even the New York Times won't be able to see him. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think that the I do think that the most important thing is is for playwrights who who are trying to learn their craft at whatever level you can get in at, and obviously the higher the better. But at whatever level you can get in that, just hear your words being spoken by actors. And try to be humble about it and see if they work and uh, listen to what other people say. So the programs which are <coughs> practically based, good. Those that are entirely literary are dangerous. Can I address myself? I, I'm not a playwright, but I did speak, and not to name drop, to Stephen Sondheim the other day. And he, he expressed terrible concern for the American musical, not for himself because he's established, but he said what's so very, very dangerous for young composers and uh, lyricists and so on in America is that they do not have a place to uh, have 
their work seen and work on it. I mean, he quoted that Puccini would have his opera done in Milan, then work on it and work on it somewhere else, and then finally open it to the press in, in, uh, in Rome or wherever. And uh, that in the old days, you know, musicals would be uh, beaten to life uh, on the road, and that can't happen because of the economics and so on. So, um, whereas playwrights do have arenas like the O'Neill and so on uh, to work on their plays, um, musical writers, and I do feel it's, a, it's an important American uh, medium, uh, is floundering at the moment for this reason alone, and uh, that you have to have a blockbuster that on the third preview is, is sailing, and that just doesn't happen. And he's much more concerned about the young uh, musical writer, because he cannot show his work hardly at all, except in a lot of uh, strange auditions in a room. There's also this thing about training, I think, that, that sort of getting lost in, in this country right now with all of our degree programs, and that is apprenticeship. Um, and I, I think most of the people on this panel, I don't want to presume, would, ha would did work that way. Um, uh, certainly directors, um, there are programs of uh, assistantships and associateships at, at these different nonprofit theaters, again, around the country, but also um, there are established directors in New York who are looking for young uh, uh, apprentice directors to be working with them. Uh, and there are a number of writers, uh, I think, I haven't written enough to be talking about this. I've done so much more directing. But uh, Mike Weller, for example, makes a point every time he's doing a new piece to have a young playwright, young, a, a, a new playwright working with him um, as he's going through the pains of, uh, uh, of putting up a new play. And I believe in such hands-on work in the theater, uh, whether it's from directing, designing, uh, writing, to be part of and watching something get built um, with the artists themselves. I just think that's what we do. I Thank, you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Clement Sumner. I'm an actor and a playwright. Um, the panel today has been very abusive of the audience, and I've been an audience, I, and I think myself a, a discriminating audience. Um, I would like you to tell me why you've been like this when the playwright <coughs> today, there's no playwright writing like Shakespeare or Chekhov, or Ibsen to really cause an audience to beat a path to Broadway. And also, I must remind you that <coughs> the audience do not select the plays to be produced. Thank you. <laughs> That's more of a question. Well, I'd like to say I don't feel we've been abusive to audiences. No. For well, I didn't think so. Um, what we're saying, we, that they're absent. They're not there. That's what we're mostly saying. They don't, they don't come. There isn't a big enough audience. Also, if there was this enormous audience for Shakespeare, presumably the Schuberts would be putting on Shakespeare's. But they're not. I mean, they're, we're not abusive for audiences. I am also, we're all an audience at, at, at other people's plays. The, the, all we're saying is, A, the audience has become very small because of the economics, and B, there's not enough plays on for them to learn the conventions of being an audience. I do think, though, that producers <coughs> at the moment have, because of the economics, have turned to what television producers and, and often big film producers are, are doing, which is guessing what the audience wants to see. Um, and most of the effort is 
you hear so often, oh, an audience doesn't want to see that, or it needs to be this kind of a play to be done on Broadway. And I think that's a very dangerous uh, assumption to make rather than committing yourself to a piece of work that you believe in. And I think that audiences will go see anything if it's good. Um, and I, we just spend too much energy deciding what they want to see. Mildred Clinton, performer. Mr. Clark, please. You mentioned that you took over the role of the actor, and you too found your line, shall we say, undeliverable. Mm. You left us with a cliffhanger. What was the line? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> this is the a classical Freudian block, I'm absolutely certain. I would be embarrassed to say it if I did. <laughs> what about the wonderful line that you're not able to use in the petition? Oh. <laughs> it's also a secret. My name is Janet Aspinwall. My first question is, is the line, quote, I can't remember? Or you don't remember the line. I don't remember the line. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but my actual question is, uh, the federal government made a commitment to the space program, and that certainly has created excellent on, excellence on that front. Do you feel that it's possible in the arts for the federal government to do something that would spur not only our playwrights and directors and performers, but also the audiences in the next generation? Is there really something specific that can be done? Yes, I'd like National to speak down to the arts panel. <coughs> yes, I, I was on the National Council of the Arts for the government, and uh, I was there with Nancy Hanks for nine years, <coughs> and she was the creator of actually hundreds of theaters all over the United States with federal money. If she found a state that didn't have an important theater, she'd send someone out to start it and, uh, and give them the money to do it. And, and she didn't do that really because she believed so much in the theater, but she knew that the senator from that state, if he didn't have the theater, would vote against the money for theater. So she, she would make sure that every state got money for theater. And that has spread, and as you know, we have so many regional theaters, I don't think they'd be existing without the NEA. Thank you, Hi, Cookie Winborn. Um, my question is directed primarily to the directors, most specifically the American directors. Uh, earlier, you were talking a lot about the regional theater, and I think it was Mr. Renee that said, uh, stated, quote, there's a lot of good regional theater out there and we ought to be tapping into it, unquote, okay? Yet, when you same directors look at pictures and resumes when you're casting, you don't look at the plays and the roles in the regional theaters, but you look more for New York credits. Why is that? I mean, why, why is it that uh, there's a lot of talk and discussion about the regional theaters, but then coming here, obviously, from a regional theater, and then getting into New York, they're only concerned with the New York credits, not the regional theater credits. Why? <laughs> I don't understand. I think I can address myself. I don't think at Long Wharf, where, where I principally work, we really look for, um, um, ignore the uh, regional credits. I mean, if you've played Rosalind somewhere or other, I will question you about that. The, the reason we ask about the New York things, is, uh, I do, is that the likelihood of my having seen it in New York uh, helps me to, to say, oh, yes, I did see you in that. I mean, I. I, I often, sometimes, uh, in fact, I saw a play of Norman Renee's at the Blue Window, and I saw an actor who was an understudy, and he's now standing by in loot. 
because I thought he had some some good qualities, and all he did was audition. Um, all right. Okay. What well, you don't want to answer it, do you, Norman? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask a question to that would sort of be around Robin, as to most who have worked in both theater and and television and movies. Why why would you choose theater to work in? over these reasons, other leaving out the economic reasons for it. But I, I know why performers would rather work in the theater, because of that instant reaction that they get from an audience, the, the constant changing and the ability to feel the audience. But why, as a playwright and a director, would you choose, if you do, the theater? <laughs> I'll, I'll answer, because for me, it's, it's specific. Um, uh, in the theater, you can actually, as a writer, say what you want to say, and it's yours. Um, very nuts and bolts is not even a, a big um, abstract idea. There is something in network television called standards and practices. This is basically a censor bureau that you have to get your work through. I've just spent a year doing that. It's, uh, you want to know why there are certain values in America about... Um, uh, language and about um, what is proper behavior between a man and a woman. Uh, uh, if you <laughs> want to talk about why violence is allowed in our thinking and sexuality is not, all you have to do is write an intimate love story for any of our major networks. Um, we have a real censorship board at the major networks. Um, and at the end of of uh, your work as a writer, you do not own that script. It is not yours. Um, similarly, one, one has di different things with, with film, but again, I would say that film very often is a director's medium. Um, as a writer, um, truly the place where you can say what you want to say, how you want to say it. Uh, you may last for three minutes or three years. Um, because of it, but you can stand by and own what you want to say, and I think that's very, very important. First, first of all, this, this doesn't apply in Britain because British television drama came from the British theatre. That's where it came from. British American television drama came from American film. Um, so I, I only license the BBC to do my plays. I hold all copyrights wow, of television plays. Hmm. And um, there are contractual things of, of co consultation. I, I do get said what I want to say on television. But the reason I prefer to write in the theatre is quite simple. It's harder. Yes. It's harder. It's, uh, it's, for me, the ultimate test and the ultimate discipline of the playwright's craft. Mr. Willis? Those answers are basically the answers. It's a more personal medium. Mm. Uh, and traditionally, uh, Although this too is changing, I'm told, the writer was the king, and he should be. Uh, well, he should be. Yeah. And when he ceased being the king, what you see began to happen. Yes. I just want to make one little statement. The Tony Awards of a couple of years ago, I can't remember which year, three or four years ago, uh, made a lot of awards to people for their accomplishments during the year in the theater. Not one playwright was mentioned, but two theater owners. 
were honored. And I thought that that was one of the most honest reflections of the reality of this enterprise. Oh, we have a quick second for the two directors. After you. Huh? Well, I haven't done very much television or The little bit of television that I have witnessed uh, from the production side has not afforded a director any time uh, to do anything but technically put together a program. Uh, in the theater, you get to actually direct. You get to have a viewpoint. You get to have people carry that viewpoint out. And it seems to me in television, your job is to get it done. And the faster you get it done, the better you've done in your job. Um, and that doesn't really interest me. <coughs> Frankly, he said, that says it all. I mean, uh, I'm a man of the theater. I haven't worked in the television and so on. And I do feel it's, um, it's uh, the, the, the medium that I work best in. I, I, I do agree that in England, uh, on television, there are some really exciting plays and, and uh, so on that can be seen. I wish it was so here. I suppose there are some. And, uh, I think what really says it all is what you just said, I'm a man of the theater. And I think all of us here are people of the theater. And I once more have to interrupt this wonderful, <coughs> wonderful panel, this wonderful discussion. There isn't enough time to continue talking and listening and asking and probing these concerned people that have come to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing and we've talked about many things in the American Theatre but one of the all-year-round programs of the American Theatre Wing is trying to, to instill the habit of theatre theater going and, and theater needs at a very early age through our Saturday Theater for Children program, which goes into their schools at a very early age and says to children, here, make a commitment, go to the theater, and they do. And we hope that those people will come to the theater as a need, not just for an anniversary or not because it's the biggest ticket or because it is the best rave review of New York Times or any other paper. I thank you all for being here. The seminars are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center. And they are part of the American Theatre Week's all-year-round program on working in the theatre. Today's seminar was on the playwright and the director. Thank you very, very much for being here. Yeah. 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 Yeah.